Well, Ankar, thanks for joining us. Uh, you are the first guest on the rebranded now Dom Watkins show. And I've told this story uh, before, so I know you've heard it, but I know that there's some people who haven't, which is, um, I mean, I had known a little bit about your work before I came to the Institute, but I was also had uh, just started taking your intro philosophy class in the OAC. Mm-hmm. And by that point, I had been studying objectivism, I don't know, nine years, you know, I, I had been around the block for a while and thought I knew quite a bit, poured my heart and soul into the first paper I did for you on free will, was super proud of it and got a C. And uh-huh. it was kind of, you know, soul crushing, but the feedback I got on what was wrong with it was one of those moments where it was really exciting because I realized, wow, there's so much more to learn. And thankfully, I have access to people who can you know, help me learn what I want to learn. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you in particular about the you know, challenges and lessons for how to learn philosophy and how to incorporate it into your life. And that's especially true because I think most people, very few people get the opportunity I did, which is to work with somebody like you for a decade. Uh, and even the OAC, which uh, the Objectivist Academic Center, which I, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about at various mm-hmm. points, um, I encourage people to sign up for it, but not everybody can. And so any you know, lessons we can give people, I think would be helpful. So I would, wanted to start with um, how you got interested in objectivism and in particular what you did early on as part of your attempt to understand it. I got interested in objectivism in high school, but I got interested in philosophy first. And I think that's significant in terms of how I approached learning objectivism when I got excited by Ayn Rand and the first Ayn Rand piece that I read was Atlas Shrugged. And I was one of those people who I read it in three or four days. I mean, basically morning to evening I was reading the but but the reason I was reading it is I had become interested in philosophical, especially moral issues. That as a teenager, I became more and more convinced, and I actually conceptualized it like this: that I don't agree with most adults' view of right and wrong or of good and evil. And then it occurred to me, well like why exactly and what is good and what is evil and i started reading things in philosophy i figured uh, well I, we had a set of encyclopedias at home old encyclopedia Britannica, right. and I, I started just reading good evil and following entries and so on and it quickly pointed mostly to philosophical philosophical theological but i wasn't religious so i didn't pick up theological stuff uh, so i started reading some philosophy things and i didn't understand much of what I was reading, but I was interested in the topic. And then it was actually my older brother, uh, Amit, who you know, told me, he, he was already at university, he came home and noticed what I was reading. He said, well, this is what you're interested in, you've got to read Atlas Shrugged. He had read it, I think a year before or something. So I, that's how I um, picked up Atlas Shrugged and got hooked because one of the things that impressed me about Rand and the novel was one, the seriousness which with she took issues of good and evil. So I felt like, oh, here's someone who's thinking about the same thing I'm thinking about and, and thinks it matters, that it's important to get the right answer. And then she had answers to things, to things that I couldn't even quite formulate as questions. 
So it was clear to me, it was one, she took it super seriously. And two, she had a perspective on good and evil that I had never encountered before. And that, I mean, and the novel's a page turner. So the, those three things together, I read it in three, four days. So then after that, so this would have been in the 80s, right? Uh, yeah, late 80s. late 80s. And, you know, so obviously you weren't racing to YouTube, you know, or Facebook with this major discovery. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think a lot of people even know, like there wasn't a ton published back then. I mean, obviously all of Rand's works existed, but not even Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand existed. So what were the kinds of things you were doing to further study the philosophy at that point? I ordered every book that I could. So the, after I finished Atlas, it was, what else is there by Ayn Rand? Went to the school library. They didn't have anything. So just ordered both fiction and nonfiction books, including, I mean, I had saved up enough money because they were expensive, but including the three bound periodicals mm-hmm. that uh, the objectivist newsletter, the objectivist Ayn Rand letter. And read all of it so that's the major thing that i did and you talk about the internet i mean one thing that's funny and it i mean it's funny it's a little tragic is i so i found out after get i mean after ordering those things that there's also lecture courses but at that time many weren't even for sale you could rent them but you had to get i forget what it was three or four other people to say, we're all going to listen to it. And I didn't have three or four. <laughs> I couldn't get the, the hold of them. And that was really funny. But um, To what extent, though, do you think, because one thing that I think both of us have observed is that people, um, including people genuinely interested in the philosophy, don't, they don't have a deep experience of coming back to her writings over and over again. And to what extent do you think having... This, that as a starting point of there's kind of a limited world. So I really have to get everything out of it that I can and really pay attention to what's being said versus just listen to the latest, you know, um, take on the news, which can be valuable. But mm-hmm. if you're spending all your time doing that, um, do, do you think that kind of constrained thing had any benefits? Yes. So I, I really learned objectivism, sort of, sort of the, the basics. From Ayn Rand, because as I said, I couldn't get hands on any of the recorded lectures, including Dr. Peacock's lectures. And I went on in my undergraduate to study philosophy and economics. And still I couldn't, because even to have a club, you needed to get a certain amount of people. I started a club basically in order to get the recordings, but I only managed to get the philosophy of objectivism, none of the other lecture once. So I learned it from reading Iran. And I had from Atlas Shrugged, I had the idea that I have held since then, that this is a, this is a genius level mind. She sees all kinds of things that I don't see, knows about things, asks certain questions, has answers to those questions that I can't do. And that in rereading her, you come to see more. And I have that actually to this day, that when I read almost any article of Ayn Rand's, I notice things that 
didn't really register. I mean, I've read the words before, but either precisely how she formulates the point or like why is she talking about this? And then, I mean, since I have more wider knowledge outside of just objectivism, it's, oh, it's because there's this issue and people make this kind of point. She's distinguishing what she has to say from that. So there's, so there's an enormous amount to mine from Ayn Rand and it, she has a genius level and philosophical, which means she integrates a lot of data and it's often in very condensed form as it appears in the essays, but it's there. And the more you read and reread, so the more you really study it, the more you get out of it. Well, say, say something about that because I, the, this was my experience. Even I had access to a lot more than you did when I got interested in the philosophy, though <laughs> nowhere near what people do today. Um, and I would reread the stuff, but I'd, I don't think I got nearly anything close to what I should have because I would I read her the way that I read everything else, which is I read from beginning to end, you know, in focus, taking in the words. But when somebody's trying to mine somebody like Ayn Rand, what can you say about the kinds of questions or the what they should be doing that can help them get more out of it than just what you can get through kind of reading, you know, from start to finish and as we so often do, just nod your head along mm -hmm. and go, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. One thing that I'm really glad that I did was I did an under, as I said, my undergraduate was philosophy and economics, so a double major. The university that I went to was the University of Toronto. It has a particularly good undergraduate philosophy education. It's a big department. It has a real, or at least it did at the time, I think it still does, a real historical focus. So learning not just contemporary philosophy, but also they want students to learn the history of philosophy. One of the most difficult issues in philosophy is to get why there's a question, why, why there's an issue, why there seems to be something here that is difficult to answer, um, sometimes, I mean, often in philosophy, you get positions where it's impossible to answer this question, yet it seems important. And it seems like we act as though we have answers to the question. I mean, good and evil is one issue like this. I mean, it's a very broad issue. But most people in their day-to-day -day functioning function as though they know things that are good and know things that are evil. And it matters. I mean, it, I mean just think of our as they talk about it as a polarized political environment. It's a, like, I know my party's good, your party's evil. If you ask people, okay, so what does it mean that your side is good, the other side is evil? What is good and evil? They stumble around, can't really answer. So it's, you simultaneously have sort of a perspective on it, but you can't articulate it, you can't justify it. Um, you can't meet counter arguments. You need to get some of that firsthand, but firsthand means grappling with it when other thinkers are grappling with it, not just here's an answer, but why does it seem like there's a question here that's important and difficult to answer? So one of the early things that I took that really, in my university studies that impressed this upon me is the early dialogues of Plato, which are called mm -hmm. the Socratic dialogues, but they're basically of this form of 
Socrates going around pointing out to people for broad abstractions, like what is good, what is evil, what is justice, what is honesty, that we act as though we know, but we don't really know, and we can't justify it, and indeed you can get people to be almost say the opposite of what they originally thought. And that's what it looks like to actually have philosophical questions and grappling with them. And that's what I was like in a more, certainly a much more inarticulate way as a high school student thinking about good and evil. Like I had certain questions and I couldn't really formulate them. But the more you have that experience, the more than you can pay attention both to what Ayn Rand is saying is right and what she's saying is wrong and why she thinks it's wrong. And without that, it's too easy to just go, well, she says there's this question, okay, and then she says there's the answer, okay. And it's like you're checking off boxes without really grappling with the issue. And uh, my undergraduate degree in philosophy um, forced you to grapple with it. And I had a similar, one other anecdote you brought up that your first paper that I graded was a C. The first papers I got as an undergraduate, I got C's, C pluses, and I thought, looking at it, yeah, it's probably the right grade. Um, and I've got to learn even just like what to, to grapple more with the issues. And that, that's an invaluable experience. Yeah, well, especially when I contrast it. So I've, a, a number of the people I've had on this show and just know in general who are, I think, really good thinkers in philosophy started out uh, like my best friend, Adam, who's been in this show, whom you know, Adam Edmondson, mm-hmm. they started out interested in philosophy more generally, or at least they were um, reading other philosophers at the same time. They were mm-hmm. reading objectivism where I actually think one of the things that held me back is I knew a little bit about philosophy, but it was almost all, I was only interested in objectivism from, I mean, like I said, I discovered it super early. And I definitely had more of a polemical orientation than they tended to, whereas they're really interested in the questions for the life. And I had that, like I took ideas seriously. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, I, I quit debate once I realized they only, the people I was with only treated it like a chess club or like a, yeah. you know, preparing to be a lawyer. Um, but it was still, the question in my mind would be, can I answer this in an argument uh, oh, I'm really trapped by this, you know, clever anarchist uh, argument, the, you know, the Roy, Ch- Roy Childs thing about don't you have to initiate force if you're like those kind of things that are just so remote from actual life. And it makes it really hard to think. Um, and that's why I think the I needed kind of to be um, pushed by somebody who was sympathetic with the philosophy or agree with the philosophy that, no, you don't really understand it versus I felt like I could now, you know, answer any of the, let's call it hundred usual attacks on objectivism, uh-huh. but I didn't really see the world through those eyes in that way. Um, yeah. Were there any areas that, where you do think where early on you were making certain kinds of mistakes that held you back and that you were able in your methodology to eventually overcome? Yes. Yeah, so there's, I mean, looking back, it's, so I, I put it in a positive spin that I think it, I really benefited from studying philosophy as such and thinking about objectivism in relation to philosophical questions, what other philosophical theories and so on. But 
that's uh, you could put it a work in progress because there this is said in the oral tradition in objectivism that uh, and it's probably coming from Nathaniel Brandon, but I'm not positive that Ayn Rand gives you answers to questions you haven't learned to ask yet. And there's so there's a way in which you can think you know more than you know. And I certainly had that as well. So it's though I had broadly, there's real questions here. They're difficult. You have to grapple with them. There's, I also had an argumentative side and arguing with people and trying to convince them about objectivism and certainly jumping ahead of what I actually knew. But that is also, if you're a little self-reflective, that is a good experience as well. So if you're not self-reflective, the tendency is when you lose an argument to always think, well, they're stupid. They just didn't understand what I was saying. But if you're a little self-reflective, you can, you will sometimes see, yeah, I lost that argument. Um, and then to think, why did I, is it that they're right? Do I think that they're right? Or did my, just, just my argument wasn't good. And if it wasn't good, why wasn't it good? Like, what was I appealing to? Why is that not adequate or not correct way of analyzing? And if you do that, then it is, you put it that you can correct. If you're a little self-reflective like this, the issue of liking to argue and knock down positions, if you're honest about it, and as I say, self-reflective, so it's not always if you lose or you think that it went badly, that it's always somebody else's fault. That is a learning experience, but you need then to draw on, like, what are you going to draw on to answer? If you find, okay, I lost and it's probably because I didn't have a good argument. Well, what is a better argument? So, and that again of reading Ayn Rand and rereading, when you do that, you will often, you read, and this is not how she approaches it. Like, I was making an argument that I thought, like I have her conclusions on, but this is not when she argues for it, it doesn't look like what I was arguing. Um, and then you can ask why. Yeah, that that is actually a really important point. I, I shudder at how many years as a teenager I'd get into long debates for the objectivist conclusion. And I had no clue what even her actual argument was for it. And the funny thing is I've been doing, I think I mentioned to you, I've been doing these videos where I'm going back and kind of summarizing and riffing on each section of Leonard's book, Opar. Mm -hmm. And it's really helpful to focus on, okay, this really is exactly what the argument is, you know, for uh, integrity or for why we need to act on principles or here's you know the the what she's doing in ethics related to what she's doing with objectivity as a method and not like just getting clear mm -hmm. clearer and clearer on the you know the essential argument versus like, here's a better example because this is one that i actually feel like i learned uh doing this series of videos that i didn't have like what is exactly her critique of altruism I knew 20 different things she said about altruism, mm -hmm. but if you were going to try to boil it down to what is her essential line of argument against it. Um, and, and so I am, uh, that's the, you know, going back to the well and like, all right, yeah. what is, what is she actually saying? Not, I've got this conclusion and it's hard to retain, you know, all of the argument for it. And so I'll just start groping more. Um, oh no, if you tell a lie, then here's 10 bad things that will happen versus, you know, why doesn't she seem to be obsessed with this issue the way I am about yeah. it? It's really hard to get away with, you know, a lie. And um, I'd say one other thing that um, is important, I think, when you're really trying to 
understand Ayn Rand's arguments, particularly as you say, I, mean, I think we both had this, that pretty convinced from early on that I agree with her, you have to separate out um, what's her argument from, is the argument right or not? So it, it's a task, and this is true of any philosopher, just getting, like, what precisely does he, he or she think is the argument leading to this conclusion? And not yet, it, do I think this argument is a good argument, but just what exactly is it? The more you do that, the more you'll have stages where I don't even know what the argument is, let alone is it right or not. It's like, I can't isolate what it is exactly. It seems to be this, but then she says such and such, which seems like it, that's not then really what she thinks is the essential. And you'll learn that it's, oh yeah, it's difficult to get exactly what the argument is. And there should be stages in your understanding. And I certainly did this as an undergrad, and I think it was very helpful to do this, that it was, I don't understand what this conclusion is. So it seems to be such and such, but if it's really that, it seems wrong. So like, is this really the conclusion? I don't understand what the argument is. I think the conclusion is this. And then, okay, I think the conclusion is this. I think the argument is this. Is it a good argument? And those are distinguishable stages. And again, if you deal with other thinkers, it's much because they're not, oh, I'm, I agree with this and sort of I'm supposed to now agree because this is my philosophy. So it's just like, what is going on here? And these are stages in the analysis that you should pay attention to. Well, I think one thing that I think is really healthy about the OAC to go to that is that there's such an, a stress on this is like our view is this is knowledge. And so this idea that, well, because you agree with objectivism, um, you know what the philosophy is and you agree with every element or something like that, or at least what's a better way to put it? There's, a, there's an encouragement not to start with, all right, we're all in on objectivism. How do we defend it or understand it? But here's a body of knowledge. Are you really clear on what the conclusion is? Are you really clear on what the argument is? And then, then you can analyze whether or not you agree with it. Like, I think that was one of the things I came away with was because I had a little bit of the idea of, all right, now I'm an objectivist, so I have to crusade for it. If I admit that I don't uh, uh, fully understand this point or maybe even disagree with it, I'm... Yeah the letting down the philosophy or something like that. And that was so discouraged. Um, any remnants I had by the time I worked at ARI and went through the OAC, it, it, you, you couldn't get away with it um, because it's the value is put on understanding and you can very quickly get whether somebody understands or whether they're kind of doing as I was doing my free will paper, which is more like echoing yeah. stuff that they had read. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we know that students coming in, if there's a tendency, it's going to be a tendency to do that. And as you say, it, I think it's usually for a good motive. It's like I, I've come in to think that this is true. I want it to be my philosophy. So, so I want to uphold it. How do I do that? And the how do I do that is often wrong about it. Okay, I can't voice any disagreements or any doubts. And that's not healthy. So it, it's usually coming from a good motivation. And so the, when it's discouraged and another, another approach is encouraged, students usually find that empowering. Oh, it's, oh, okay, this, I can actually think about this and have questions about this. So, and that is, yeah, if it's going to become knowledge, there's no shortcut. You have to do that. Otherwise, it's more like a religion and not a philosophy.
Yeah, and I think why I mean I think what makes that easy to fall into is I mean this is how I remember thinking of it as a teenager. You I read Atlas, I read The Fountainhead and I'm like clearly that way of life, like that's the kind of way of life I want. And so the idea that it was really an open question. Well, no, maybe I should live like a Peter Keating or, you know, Catherine Halsey or like the idea that that was wrong just seemed so off the table that it was, well, I have to hold on to these arguments, even if I don't quite understand them or have mm-hmm. trouble defending them. And so I think it was that on the, that's why I agree with you that it is a good motivation usually because it's, you do see something in reality that you're yeah. trying to defend. It's not, it's, I don't think it is this kind of, you know, religious, I want a stamp of approval from objectivism. You see something, but you can't, you don't fully understand it and can't fully defend it or let's say fully justify it in your own mind, let alone defend it to others. And that's particularly true, as you said, I mean, you brought up the kind of moral cases and the heroes, but you get perspective of what makes them heroic. So it's, and there's something very right about this. And you get it with the politics as well, I think. And this is in terms of Ayn Rand's arguments, a, a thing she points out regularly that from a certain perspective, there's no debate about freedom versus uh, tyranny or capitalism versus dictatorship. You look at, and again, it's, there's evidence. When you look around the globe, everywhere it's tried from Hong Kong to Singapore to East and West Germany, it's, the evidence is pretty damning against statist approaches and so overwhelmingly favorable when there's more freedom that it's again so it's not yeah it's not blind acceptance you she points things out like this and it's you look and then yeah there's something really right about this but then to have a full case for what makes capitalism moral and and various statist systems immoral that takes a lot of work to get to that state to know fully the arguments so um, I want to transition a little bit into focusing on kind of using objectivism in life. And uh, well, I guess one, one question along those lines. So, you know, as you're learning the philosophy, were there any ideas that you found challenging to like integrate or make part of life? Or was it usually just more of a cognitive understanding an idea? Um. Yeah, it's, it's more a cognitive understanding for me. That's partly just what I was interested in. So I had in high school, but it's Ayn Rand changed my mind about this, that when I embarked on a philosophy economics double major undergrad, it was with the intent to an explicit that I want to become an intellectual likely want to teach, I'm interested in that. And I found out in high school that I'm interested in that. So I'm interested in the intellectual world. It's part of the career direction I'm headed in so that it's thinking of philosophy as a system of ideas. I was particularly interested in that. And and this as a worldview in competition with other worldviews. So for instance, free will was a big issue for me. I think anyone, um, I, so I came in high school, I was interested in math sciences. Prior to reading Ayn Rand, I thought for sure that's gonna be my career direction. And she changed my mind about that, that there is such a career as an intellectual uh, and, in, and in philosophy. So that's 
And that's what I was actually interested in. And I knew that at some level, but I never, it never even crossed my mind that I'll make a career out of this. Right. And so, so coming from a math science worldview, which is heavily deterministic, the idea that, well, free will is, is, there is such that we have free will and objectivism is a very, both distinctive perspective on it, but very strong in the sense it's free will self-evident. Um, so you, that you can't get around it. You're not, the, the whole deterministic framework that tries to deny it, it objectives of view is incoherent. And that was, that, like, that's, um, those are fighting words in the sense <laughs> that you're really coming. And, and it, it, is this really true? So that was, I grappled with that a lot. Um, and I think I've come to resolve the issues in my mind, but that was a long standing um, conflict in terms of getting this as a system of ideas. And as, as I say, I think this is a, that's a normal one for anyone with an engineering science math kind of background. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so, uh, you know, we both made our careers in the realm of ideas when th one of the most common things that I hear by people struggling to implement philosophy is it's, it's usually not like, I just want to do all these like immoral things. <laughs> it's, it's mm -hmm. hard not to, but often it comes in the form of, I just don't see philosophy come up in my life, right? Like uh -huh. once they've, and Leonard talks about this in understanding objectivism, that feeling of, all right, once you've chosen a career and, you know, maybe picked a romantic partner, like, and these are not people who are trying to dismiss philosophy. They're trying to look for it and they don't see it after they've made kind of their, you know, big life decisions. Mm -hmm. What, for a person like that, who's genuinely looking around, like, how can I really get more out of objectivism? What are some of the kinds of questions or issues that they can be thinking about and looking for? One important one, and it was certainly important to me, was to pay a lot of attention to the novels. I read the novels many times through my undergraduate and graduate education. I think that was invaluable to do. Part of the value of philosophy, part of seeing to this issue of seeing where philosophy comes up, it comes up all over the place. Ayn Rand has a lot of argue, uh, articles argue, uh, arguing this. One central place it comes up that the novels really highlight is it helps you understand other people and both other good people and other bad people. And the way in which their motivations, ideas, values are shaped by deeper assumptions and premises. And that's all over the novels. And thinking about the novels from that perspective, that they're shedding light on helping you understand the human world, if we put it but, it, but crucially human beings and human beings' actions and patterns of actions, putting it kind of more ethically, their characters. People think of, and there's a common criticism of Ayn Rand, that she's a shallow, unnuanced thinker. And I don't have that experience at all. I find both, so this is true actually, the nonfiction essays as well, and it's one of the things I learned from rereading them often, but it's true in the novels as well. The characterization 
is very um, sophisticated and nuanced. So it's true there's real heroes and there's real villains, but there's mixed characters. And thinking about what is going on in their minds, she was, Ayn Rand was, and she said that, I mean, explicitly, she's interested in philosophical ideas insofar as they shape people's actual lives. And she's interested in people's actual lives only insofar as they reflect philosophical principles. But that doesn't mean like they're just vehicles for philosophy. It's rather you're interested in seeing them fully in their character and so on. But for that, you have to think what's moving them in the fundamental sense. And it's that relationship of principles to action is it's all over the novels. I mean, the novels are dramatic and this is what it means to dramatize actual philosophical principles. It's how they play out in actual lives, in people's minds, in their character and action. And the more you pay attention to that this is part of what she's arguing and part of her philosophy is this is the power of philosophy for good or bad, like it shapes good people, it shapes bad people. Then you learn to understand people. It's one of the basic values I've gotten from objectivism. It just, so broadly you can say it makes the world more intelligible and it makes people more intelligible. That's, I think that's really good advice. And it just, it's so striking to me because when I was doing my OPAR videos, I decided I wanted to kind of go off script for a couple of them and go into her analysis of altruism and her analysis of evil. And which is, I basically focused on really going through Galt's speech, which I hadn't reread in a while. And one of the points I made to people was, you know, if you're studying OPAR, that's great for getting the philosophy, but it's primarily focused on here's kind of the system of philosophy, the positive philosophy, there's some polemics, mm -hmm. but that if part of what you get in Galt's speech is much more about the nature of bad ideas and, and bad human motivations, uh, a lot about the good too, but um, you get so much of her analysis of how people can go wrong in the relationship between ideas. And uh, I think I, I know I mentioned there, but I'll just reiterate to people, you gave a, a course on Galt's speech where you, going to lead people through and uh, particularly the sections that most people skip or that s even objectivists will kind of feel like they're getting repetitive because they're not mm -hmm. seeing all of the uh, details about what she's doing in terms of the motives and the, uh, of, of bad people. Um, but anyway, the, the major point that I came away with that I said to people is that like what I came away with, because I, I went and did my own outline of Galt's speech, which I found mm -hmm. really helpful just to force myself to really see what she was doing, mm -hmm. uh, is it was exactly that. It was, all right, going through Opar carefully, I feel like I understand the philosophy. Going through Galt's speech, I feel like I understand the world, including how people and events are playing out a lot more. It felt like that kind of x-ray vision yeah. into the world. Yeah, and it's, it's, if it's right... That So objectivism has the view that philosophy is the fundamental force shaping the world and history. And it's philosophy is a world view. But if that's right, then learning about philosophy and both true ideas and wrong ideas in philosophy, it should shed light on the world and the basic forces at work in the world. And that certainly has been my experience with objectivism in particular, but more broadly with philosophy as such. It's part of why I was glad that I studied 
fair amount in the history of philosophy because it helps you just understand the forces at work. And again, for good or for evil, but it's just those are the forces driving things. In terms of like how you approach things now, so one of the things I've noticed is that uh, intellectuals in general, but I certainly have noticed this among objectivist intellectuals as well, there's, if you want to put it in two camps, there's people who at a certain point, you know, talking to them 10 years ago and talking to them today, you feel like you're discuss like you don't see a lot of growth. Like they've reached a certain point and they kind of stagnate or level off. Um, and then there's, there's others who it feels like if I don't talk to them for a year and I come back, it's all kinds of new ideas, new perspectives. You can see a good thinker got better. What mm -hmm. do you, what do you do to try to prevent from, this is putting it too negatively, but prevent to not stagnate and to continue growing your knowledge and understanding of philosophy? This is particularly objectivism's view, though it's not uniquely objectivism's view, that philosophy is system. It's a system of ideas. It's system building. You can see in Ayn Rand's very critical remarks about 20, 20th century philosophy that perhaps the, the, the criticism that she makes, so she makes this in many places, is that they're against system building. And for her, that means they're against the subject. And she makes that point explicitly that modern philosophy is often uh, anti-philosophy because the essence is an integration. So the, for me, there's, it's, you, you put it in a negative and said, well, let's not ask the question negatively. Yeah, I don't experience it at all negatively because I think philosophy is about integration. And there's always things that one knows, I think if you're thinking about philosophy, that it's, yeah, I see some connections here there's probably more, I'm sure I'm not seeing something. And then with Ayn Rand in particular, as I said, I still have the experience of reading her things I've read four or five or more times and reading it and still seeing new things. But I also have the experience of filing things. I still don't really get what she's saying here. And that just, it leaves, so there shouldn't be all kinds of question marks, even I think for a professional philosopher of this is still unclear or it's vague or it sounds good, but there's something off about this. And the more you file it like that, the more when you're thinking about issues, reading something, so it, your mind will bring it up. Yeah. Does this connect to what you were thinking about like this question or this problem? And I file things like that, so I find that I grow. Um, and to me, it'd be weird if I wasn't like it. There's something really strange if I wasn't, because then it's it's almost like I've jettisoned the whole subject of philosophy. If I feel like five years later, I'm exactly at the same place. There's something I'm not integrating at all. Then I think. Well, I wonder if you could take us through. So I'll just name a couple of the things that you've done publicly that are most striking to me. And like when people aren't familiar with your work, I will check that out. So uh, a couple would be, you did this self-made soul chapter in mm -hmm. the Blackwell Companion to Ayn Rand, um, moral and practical lecture, which as I've told people, like that's my view of what philosophers should be doing is they should be mastering the hard stuff and then presenting us like super useful things mm -hmm. uh, that everybody could use to live their life. Um, 
for, for some of those pieces, which I think have just real profound integrations of material that's all over Ayn Rand, but nobody's kind of put together in that way. Um, do you, it, it, and feel free to pick something else, but if you could kind of like indicate some of the steps that first like led you to be able to like see these connections. Um, I mean, the self-made soul is the one that is most striking to me because it takes what seem very disparate things in, you know, her psychopistemology, um, her view of self-esteem, and uh, I always um, go Sense blank. Of life. Yeah, and, and sense of life and bring them together under the rubric of even like what is her view of how everybody has a philosophy and how philosophy shapes a life. And I remember the first time I heard, even before you gave like a intro to objectivism course at Ocon years ago, where you kind of made a similar point and my jaw hit the floor. And I'm wondering if you could kind of recreate, you know, what went into that perspective. I can tell you a few things. And on the theme of integration, looking for connections, but also of filing things that I don't really understand this. And certainly I'm positive there's more to the issue than I'm seeing. So it might be, I understand what I understand about this, but I don't understand that much yet about this issue. The, in philosophy who needs it, the lead essay, she's talking to a group of cadets about the subject of philosophy. This is a bit of an aside, but it's useful for the issue of studying philosophy. When I was an undergraduate, I was too much oriented towards just, okay, what's the argument? What's the issue? Not too interested in the historical context of it and thinking of like, what would this, thinking of this thinker's um, environment and who is he or she talking to and why and so on. I've become more that if you're really trying to figure out what they're doing, you have to pay attention to that. So it's, she's talking to a group of cadets who don't know that much about philosophy. She's trying to sell them on the subject. She's indicating certain points, but there's no way this is her detailed position about it. So, but even in this essay, she's bringing up that the subconscious is an integrating mechanism. It works in part by emotions. And yeah, I mean, it seems like there's something right about that, but even just how does Ayn Rand think about this? How does she think about it as she, she talks about it as it's, it's more integration along emotions. It's partly cognitive, partly emotional. And so there's it. So I had it as, there's got to be more that she has to say than what's in this essay. And the more you think about it, like, yeah, why would she present her whole detailed theory to a group of cadets in one hour? And so, then it's, yeah, okay, so this is the tip of an iceberg. And that, if you file it like that, it prompts you more for when you read philosophy and sense of life. Okay, this is about aesthetics. But one of the crucial theoretical points is that the formation of a sense of life is more emotional than cognitive. It's not like emotional versus cognitive because she thinks in the end emotions come from your ideas, but it's more emotional than cognitive. And it's okay. That's the kind of thing she's talking about in that essay. And this is a richer, deeper, more theoretical issue, but it's likely the same issue that she's talking about. 
And then it's, then you have a sort of question, well, is it the same issue or not? And the more I read and the more I thought about what she's arguing in various places, yeah, this is the same issue. And it's her perspective of what it means to form an implicit philosophy. And then if you think of as, well, self-esteem is an essentially moral metaphysical. Psychoepistemology is essentially epistemological. Sense of life is essentially metaphysical, but pertains to the, like it's the base for morality. It's, yeah, so these have to be interconnected because it's her perspective on what it means to have an implicit philosophy. And so how does she think about these interconnections? And it, it's, so you begin to integrate it, but it, you can integrate without both filing things so that you'll see connections, but also having a bunch of questions and so on. And it, and having some point in which, yeah, they don't integrate to me. Like I don't, they just seem disparate things. And really to admit to yourself, yeah, they just seem disparate things. So at some stage in my thinking about objectivism, I would have had, yeah, just self, their self-esteem and their psychopistemology and their sense of life. And they're just three things and they're interesting and she thinks they're important, but they're just disparate. And the more you acknowledge that, that, that that's how they stand in my mind. Um, but, and then you have the question among others, is that how they stand in her mind? Um, and at some point you will come to see, no, they don't stand like that in her mind. Yeah, well, you mentioned things you don't understand. Philosophy and sense of life is one of the essays that terrifies me. I mean, it's the one I go back to and feel most baffled by. Like, mm -hmm. even if I feel like I understand the basic point, when I'm trying to understand paragraph by paragraph, uh -huh. that's one where it's, okay, yeah. there's, there's a lot... Uh, I couldn't recreate this, you know, if all of objectivism was burnt and it was, what could I, you know, recreate right. even from memory? Like, but uh, that, that's definitely yeah. there. Um, yeah. And I do, I hope people will get Greg's uh, and Alan Godhell's book, The Blackwell Companion, because there's a lot of pieces that are um, incredibly valuable, but mm -hmm. uh, yours is certainly one that I would single out for people to read. Um, that's helpful. I'm curious as to, so one of the things, you know, we'll ask it then to show how people can follow your work, but you're not on social <laughs> media. Um, you're not, you're infamously not the fastest person to respond to email. I think you're somebody who deliberately guards your time to do the things that are like highest value. Yeah. Um, but if you could say a little bit about how you tried to do that with your career, like really, um, you know, think about what is it I'm trying to achieve and then kind of not go with the conventional expectations that can kind of take people away from that. How you think about, if you want to put it in, um, you know, just simple term, how you think about the issue of productivity for an intellectual career? For me, the central driving issue was I actually want to know what's true. And I became interested in objectivism in that context. I was trying to figure out what's true. And I became quickly convinced that she knows all kinds of things that I don't know, but want to know. So that I want to learn that. And that was, for me, the driving issue already as an undergraduate. So I, I said earlier that I got C's in my undergraduate courses at, at the start in philosophy. And I thought, yeah, this, this 
grade is deserved. But it never even occurred to me that I would take easier classes where I would get higher grades. Um, someone who looked at like, why are you getting C's? Then looked at some of my assignments. And said, like you always take the hardest question. And yeah, like how else am I gonna learn unless I take it and see if I can do the hardest questions. So that for me was what was driving from early on. And I quickly became convinced as well that philosophy is hard. And it requires intense and lengthy thinking about issues. So one thing that I did, for instance, even as an undergraduate, what in terms of time management, uh, I had Fridays as I'm not doing classwork or coursework for anything, basically. I'm going to deal with the issues, but I'm just trying to figure out, like, what do I think is true? Going to read stuff, think about it, but not for any assignment or anything like that. It's not because I have to, but it, it's like, this is really what's on my mind, and I want to think about that. I think, I mean, the, the people work in different ways, but for me, I need to do that if I'm actually going to get to the level of thinking, yeah, I know this, and I think it's true. It... Um, I don't think every branch or, or um, kind of aspect of knowledge always needs this. But for me, philosophy is hard and it requires, you can't think in like five minute segments. Like, yeah, I'm going to think about it now. I got 10 minutes now. For me, it takes uninterrupted time. So that when I, if that's really what I'm trying to do and it's everything productive has to come out of I think what I'm saying is true, not it's entertaining or it's what people want to hear or something, but I actually am convinced it's true. That, that's the precondition for it, for, at least for me. Like I'm not going to be in that position to be able to do that unless I spend in-depth time thinking about the issues. And so it became from early on, I have to carve out this time to do that. Otherwise, it's I'm not, like, why am I in this career? I'm not going after the basic goal that for me is why I was interested. Like I'm interested in the truth and there's gotta be other people out there who are. And I, the, so the teaching conveying aspect of it, I was from early on interested, but the precondition was, I have to really think I'm in a position to know this. And that for me takes a lot of time. Well, speaking of teaching, I'm really curious as to what your, what your view is now having taught philosophy and particularly the OAC for gosh over a decade yeah much more than a decade yeah almost um one one ongoing question I have and I don't I mean I don't I don't have that kind of teaching experiences my impression has been overall um that really good people like the you know the best minds benefit from having access to people who know more than they do and mm -hmm. they can learn from. Um, but nevertheless, if I think of some of the, you know, best thinkers that I know, like, you know, I, I didn't know you when you were younger, but I've heard like you on the uh, confusion papers courses, or I knew, you know, people like uh, Greg Salmieri or Alex mm -hmm. Epstein, even when they're very young, they still have a lot to learn, but there's something really noticeable about, like how well they understand ideas and how they can mm -hmm. think about things. To what extent do you, do you think that they're, that, um, 
you can in effect take like the best minds and help them grow more rapidly versus do you think that there are people who you've seen really go through breakthroughs where, yeah, they didn't seem like they were going to be like rock stars of philosophy early on. And then they surprised you and you I'm not asking you to name names, but it's just, it's very, I find it interesting to think about like what should be the expectations of a teacher um, who's trying to help students. Uh, I think you can, for almost everybody, help accelerate their progress. But that is um, part of it. What it means to accelerate their progress is to to learn something. The person has to do a lot. So th- no teacher can um, leave aside sort of er- very early education. No teacher can convey new knowledge without the person putting in the thinking necessary to convert it into new knowledge in their own minds. So in that sense, it's, you can accelerate, but the, the, the basic um, effort has to come from the person and the basic desire in a sense, like they want to have to want to know this and find it. You can help make it interesting and why you would want to know this, and so, but it has to come then it, it's, yeah, I do want to know this. and I'm going to put the work in, to learn it. So, and that's the sense in which you can accelerate, but if that doesn't come from the student, if there's not real interest in learning it, there's nothing you can do in the end, I think. You can make it more enticing, but that's not converting it into um, implanting a desire or want in their minds. I do think um, there are people who can surprise you. I think the norm is more you see very early on yeah, there's real potential here. There's something unusual because, and the potential means re, usually when you're I'm talking about students, when you're getting them at, at teenage, early 20s. And so it's, the potential means there's already a lot of stuff that's been made actual. So they've done thinking and connections on their own. And you can see that there's a real base there from which further progress can come and can come rapidly even. But there are people who can surprise you because the people can have all, so I think at least in two ways, you can have artificial impediments that if they're lifted in some way, all of a sudden progress can happen much more rapidly than it seemed like it could happen. And it can be various, I mean, to take a, something outside of philosophy, that I think it's real that people have math phobias They've been told in one way or another that it's, you're just not a math person or girls can't do math or all kinds of things like that, that it's an artificial impediment. And if you can dislodge that, then it's, you find all of a sudden, oh yeah, no, there's much more interest and aptitude here, but it was just an artificial impediment. You see that in philosophy often with religious people, I think. So there's a kind of religious person who can be genuinely interested in philosophical issues, but everything, because they have a religious upbringing or religious schooling, everything's been processed as you have to approach this in a religious, more dogmatic way. And if that can get lifted from the person, but he retains, yeah, I'm really interested in these issues. I'm not going to approach them in a dogmatic way. assertion without argument kind of way 
And if I say one thing wrong, I'm going to hell. And so that, you, if that gets dislodged from their mind, again, you can see progress that at first seemed like this isn't going anywhere. Um, so I think that's one condition under which you see it. And another is a person can get more interested in an issue. And again, and a good teacher can help get, oh yeah, there is something really interesting here. And so, so this is what I had, I mean, Ayn Rand's not quite a teacher, but it's, I was interested in philosophy and Ayn Rand convinced me, like I'm way more interested in philosophy than I thought I was. And then it's, if you have a, that combination of, yeah, now I'm super interested and I have some aptitude, then it can, it can go much more quickly as well. So it, there, there's various conditions, I think, in which, um, yeah, even if it doesn't seem like you're starting with that much, you'll meet the person five, 10 years later, and it's, oh, they made a lot of progress. Well, at the, at the risk of embarrassing you, I do want to just say publicly, well, thank you uh, for everything you've done. Like, so much of, like, what I know has come from a handful of people, but, like, you've been instrumental. And so part of what happened in the last year is I decided, right, I'm going to make a go at kind of being self-employed. And what I'm interested in is helping people understand and communicate good ideas. And the way that it stood in my mind was like, I had the privilege to be able to work with you for over a decade. And who gets that? Like not that many people on earth have somebody that they really admire that they're going to get to learn from in an ongoing way. And so it's what like how can I try to give as much of that value like make it available to anyone and just you know transmit it so uh, I really appreciate everything you've done how can people um, follow your work uh, so you I mean these ways at the Ayn Rand Institute so both our YouTube channel you can subscribe to that I do a lot of things there we have a publication on a digital publication new ideal I contribute to that I have an expert page up on uh, uh, at ari.einrand.org, and you can find links to uh, various essays and book chapters I've contributed, as well as interviews and things like that. So those are three places you can find uh, that have much more of my work. Well, great. Thanks a lot, Ankar. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Don.